I get the opportunity to introduce uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers, uh, and uh, my relationship with him started years ago, back when I was a student in Bible college. I know uh, Brother Doran doesn't look that old at all, and he's not. Uh, but uh, when I was a student in Bible college, he is old. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Davey. Uh, uh, so when I was a student in Bible college, uh, there was uh, a, a man who would come and he would, he would uh, come up and visit the school and he was actually recruiting for seminary. Uh, Brother Dorn has a seminary called Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, which is very similar to our seminary. If there was any seminary in the entire world that I would feel is uh, most similar to our seminary, it's Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And at that time, he'd come up to North and he'd be recruiting students back when I was young. You know, I was in my uh, early 20s and uh, I really seriously contemplated going there. Matter of fact, I signed up once to go to be an intern at your church. And uh, I was accepted, but then something happened and you told me I couldn't come. So I'm not bitter about that, but, uh, but it led to a whole series of events in my life that I don't want to get into. No, just, um, so I, I really respect him for his love for the word, his love for God, and his uh, ministry philosophy. Um, as a little bit of a younger pastoral staff, I, I really coveted having him and J.D. Crowley here to come uh, and for them to be able to talk with our pastoral team and to talk with our leadership and, and some of the deacons as well, deacon mission committee and so on, about mission and answering some of the big questions re- related to mission. You know, why do we do mission work? What why or how should we go about doing it and, and in what ways and just hear from him and gain some wisdom from him. But uh, in all those trips up to Northland, uh, he decided for a year or two there to, to actually be an adjunct teacher at Northland. And he taught one class called expository preaching. And the way it would work, I mean, it was insane. He would fly up every Monday night from Detroit to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And then he would drive from Green Bay to Dunbar, which is about an hour and a half and you're taking your life in your own hands every time you do that because there are more deer on that road than there are people in the, in the county. You know, they're just all over. He would drive up every Monday night, teach us all day Tuesday, and then he would fly home Tuesday night. And so I don't know, how long did you do that for? Three years. So I had the privilege of having Brother Doran come and teach a class on expository preaching. And so as a student, I don't think he'll take credit for that. Um, that I was in your class. I won't, I won't talk about the grade I received in there either. Uh, but I'm so thankful to you. I praise the Lord for you. I pray for you. I pray for your ministry. And I thank you for being a good example to us. Look, looking forward to what you have for us as well. So come and speak to us. I'd give you an A for that sermon tonight. So I don't know what I gave you in the class, but forgive me if I didn't, if I didn't do that. It is a, it's a great joy to be here. Certainly uh, have uh, great and high regard for this ministry. I've had the opportunity to be here a few times over the years, and so it's always great to be back. I was uh, able to catch up with Pastor Daniel uh, some tonight and this morning, and as well the Belfords. Uh, certainly uh, probably need to do some counseling for you, too. She, she's over here. It's okay. It's all right, brother. We'll, we'll, we'll talk later on that one. So... Is, uh, it really is a great joy to be here. Love this church. Uh, love your seminary. Uh, just a, a great blessing to be here. Love this theme. 
It's a, it's a phenomenal theme, a great opportunity for to spend some time in the Word together, and I hope you'll think that when we're done with doing all of that. Uh, it's just a joy to be able to do that. And I was thrilled when I found out that J.D. Crawley was going to be here, and I'm actually glad he's not in here because I can just say what I want to say and not have him think I'm saying it to him. He's the real deal. I just, I'm just spending the night at the Holiday Inn Express. I mean, he, he, he is a great missionary, uh, godly man. I think you're going to really enjoy his ministry. I love uh, whenever I get a chance to get together with him. Last, just a year ago, uh, we have a mission agency at our church, and we actually had a missionary retreat for all the folks who serve as missionaries with our agency, and we did it in Cyprus. So we had folks from China and Turkey and Kenya and Zambia and Tanzania uh, all gather in Cyprus, and, and uh, the Crawleys uh, were willing to come and spend the week with the missionaries there and minister to them from their experience. And so we just had a, a great time of fellowship with them. And so when I found out we were both coming here, I said, hey, every February we can just find another place to get together and, and uh, be encouraged in it. And so it, it, it is, it's a joy to be able to be here. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Matthew chapter 28, all right? Matthew chapter 28. You know, there's a saying, familiarity can blind us, and I think that sometimes that's true. Uh, You know, uh, uh, it's a missions conference, so preaching from Matthew 28 makes sense, yet at the same time, it's possible in our hearts we go, oh. I mean, how many times have we heard messages on Matthew chapter 28? I mean, what, we're just going to go over the same turf, the same focus, and, and what I would hope that we'll come at it with, with fresh eyes in that regard. I heard a story years ago that, that uh, I think sometimes can describe us. There was a man who thought he was dead. He was convinced he was dead, and he was uh, going to a counselor to try and The counselor was trying to convince him he actually wasn't dead. And finally, he came across an idea, and he showed him an anatomy book that said, corpses don't bleed. And the guy said to the the dead person, do you you believe that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I do. And, And he thought, I've got him. And so he reached in his desk and got a straight pin, went around the desk and stuck the guy, and he started bleeding. He thought, I've got him. And the guy said, well, what do you know? They do bleed. (laughs) Right? No matter what you said, he was going to reinterpret the information consistent with his preconceived ideas. And, And here's my concern, is that everybody in this room probably has some preconceived ideas about what missions is. Right? You, you've been in churches how many of you have ever been in a missions conference before? All right. You're here on a Friday night, so you're probably not like the person who has no interest in missions. And it's possible for us to be at times like that guy. We know what we think. And no matter what's said, we squeeze it into the mold of our preconceived ideas. And I think we have to at least consider the possibility that we need to let the text of Scripture 
actually be the thing that squeezes us. Right? Our thinking needs to be squeezed by the text of Scripture, not the text of Scripture by our preconceived ideas. And so we're going to, admittedly, at least in my sessions, cover some things that are basics. But almost because they are so basic, it's possible that we've lost sight of some of them. We're not letting them control us like we ought to. And and so I want us to, as much as possible, with God's help, to look at a familiar passage of Scripture, and then from that, uh, really more tomorrow and Sunday, uh, take and see how this text of Scripture actually controls the rest of the progress of Christ's disciples. That the book of Acts and the epistles are actually the unpacking of what Jesus told them to do. And therefore, must be central to how you and I think about the mission that Jesus Christ has entrusted to us as his people. Years ago, I heard a little statement that that has been very helpful for me as a student, and actually I try to teach it uh, to, to folks when I teach homiletics or preaching, Uh, It's an old Rudyard Kipling line. Six working men taught me all I knew. What, when, where, why, how, and who. I always know who goes last because it rhymes. And basically the point is that those questions open up any subject. And if you are armed with those questions, then you learn. And so we don't have six sessions. We have three. So I'm going to tackle really actually three questions. The most basic one tonight is why. Why missions? Why are we supposed to be very interested and engaged in this task? And the answer comes from the part of the Great Commission that often we just go right past, and that's verse 18. But let's read All three verses uh, of the Great Commission, verses 18 to 20 of Matthew chapter 28, and then zero in our attention on verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So look again at verse 18, because here's what I would suggest is the answer to the why question. Why do we go? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And that therefore really tips us off, right? That's the reason why we go is verse 18. The answer to the why is Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And so his authority becomes our authorization. And so let's take a few moments here and think about the authority that Jesus is referring to in verse 18. When we consider the character of this authority, I think it's important for us to slow down a little bit, right? Because you and I are sitting here tonight 
And I'm assuming most of us believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God. And so therefore he's God and he has all authority because he's God. But this text is not actually speaking about his authority as the preexistent and eternal son of God. The reason we know that is because of the word in verse 18, given. All authority has been given to me. This is not something that he possessed in eternity past. This is actually something that is concentrated in him now in the post-resurrection presentation of himself to his disciples. In fact, I think you understand this because you know other passages of Scripture. For instance, think of Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, it speaks of Jesus humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even unto the death of the cross. And you remember the hinge in that passage? Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That is, his humiliation in verses 6 through 8 leads to his exaltation in verses 9 through 11. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 is in the exaltation side of that. Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me. I have been given a name which is above every name. That's exactly how the New Testament writers, actually the apostles, preach in the book of Acts, and the New Testament writers explain it. You remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching, and he talked to the people who had crucified Jesus and said, you took him, and by the hands of sinful men crucified him, and this same Jesus, God has raised from the dead and has exalted him to his right hand and has made him both Lord and Christ. Remember the name given to him in Philippians? Right, that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Right, so what Jesus is referring to is the authority that has been entrusted in him because he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, who was obedient to his father even to the point of death and now has been raised from the dead and will be exalted to the right hand of God the Father. What Ephesians chapter 1 says is the power that raised him from the dead and exalted him to that position and gave him a name above every name and made him the head of the church, which is his body. The authority that Jesus has here is the authority of being the Lord and Christ. That was Acts chapter 2. Or in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preaches to Cornelius, he says about Jesus after his crucifixion and his resurrection that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That's Acts 10.42. Or when the apostle Paul preaches at Mars Hill, and he talks to them about their pagan idolatry and then walks through the fact that God who made everything shouldn't be compared to these images and that in previous times he let the nations go their own way, but now he calls all men 
in every place to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world, having furnished proof of it in that he raised him from the dead. That's that's what Jesus is referring to. That he is the chosen one, the Messiah who is the only mediator between God and man. That he is the only one who can represent us and is the chosen one by God to rule over everything that God has made. That all things, Ephesians 1 say, will be brought to their consummation under Christ. That he is the one appointed to be the mediatorial ruler of God over all of his creation. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have all authority in heaven and earth. It's been given to me by the Father. I am the one through whom God will rule over his creation. And I am the only one through whom they may approach him. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the authority that Jesus is speaking of. And notice the comprehensiveness of that description in verse 18. Two ways in which we see this, right? He says, all authority. And then he says, in heaven and on earth, right? And what he says that, he's, he's basically saying, in all of creation. Right? There's no place where the authority entrusted to me is not exercised. There is no rival authority that that can supersede mine. There is no one who has a name above mine. I think we can say on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, except for the Father himself, right? Because that's what 15 says. He'll rule over it all, then he'll hand the kingdom over to his Father so that God may be all in all. But Jesus is saying right now, between my first and second comings and then my return to establish my kingdom until all of that is wrapped up, I have all authority in heaven and earth. There's no rival. There's no one who can stand against him in him carrying it out. He is now waiting till all of his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. But he is the one. That authority becomes the authorization in verse 19. Go, therefore. Go, therefore. So the most obvious point that I think we can make there is that that is the basis for our commission. Right? We, we are told by Jesus that he has all authority in heaven and earth, so go. Go. And, and therefore, you and I have in the words of Christ not just obligation. We certainly do. He's our Lord. I mean, if, if the one who we acknowledge to be the risen Lord says to us, I have all authority in heaven and earth, therefore go, if we've confessed him as Lord, 
There's no other option for us. I mean, this isn't the great suggestion. This isn't a missiological option. This is the responsibility of all of Jesus's followers. And that's why sometimes we make a serious mistake when we think that this is a text for missionaries. This is a text for Christ's disciples. I would actually say, as we see it unpacked, and Lord willing, we'll see this on Sunday morning, it's actually a text for the church. Do you realize, as an individual, you cannot fulfill the Great Commission? Because what does Jesus say here? Make disciples, baptizing them. That's an ordinance of the church. You need the church to fulfill the Great Commission. The the commission wasn't given to Christians as individuals, but actually as the followers of Jesus Christ. And, And so it's a responsibility that we all have, an obligation. And so I think it's legitimate, in fact, important for us to think in light of Christ's authority and what he does here in authorizing us that that the issue isn't really, are we responsible for the Great Commission? It is what part of the Great Commission are we fulfilling? Are we a goer or are we a sender? Because all of us have that obligation. We're all accountable for the Great Commission. As members of an assembly, we are either sent by that assembly to the nations, beginning perhaps in our region with a church plant, or extending beyond it to some kind of foreign cross-cultural context. Our local church sends us out to that work or we are those who are the senders. We are investing in through prayer and support and involvement in the work of those who've gone out, like 3 John says, for the sake of his name. It's not as if there's two separate enterprises happening. There's actually one work that's being done The issue is, which part of it does God want us to be engaged in? If he has not called us and the church confirmed that call and sent us out, then our responsibility is to be the senders, to serve in the mission of Jesus Christ by being a place that is effectively launching out missionaries, and, and holding the ropes for them through prayer and support and encouragement and engagement. We're all under that obligation. No one is exempted from it. We must be good stewards of this. But it's not just an obligation. If we really get what's going on in verse 18, then it is our motivation. We have the privilege of declaring to all peoples in all places that Jesus is Lord. 
that he has conquered sin and death and risen from the grave and has exalted the right hand of God and is coming one day to rescue those who trust in him from the wrath to come. That's the message that Paul preached to the Thessalonians. And it's the hope that we have as well. And if we really get that, that is the kind of message that bubbles up in our heart with joy that we have been rescued by this one. We worship this one. We are like the Corinthians, gathered together as those who call on the name of the Lord. We gather under the banner of that name because Jesus Christ is our Lord, and we get to declare what he's done for us and what he's offered to people both near and far. It's a commission, an authorization that motivates us. But it also grants to us permission because he is Lord of all. And when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he is saying that there is no place on this globe where his followers are barred from declaring his lordship. And that's important to understand. Because if we understand the the realities in our world and actually the unfolding of the advance of the gospel, we know that the gospel is going to run into conflict with political powers which will command Christ's people to not preach the gospel. Right, Acts 2, the church is formed. They begin to proclaim the lordship of Christ and call people to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. By Acts 4, they're officially encountering persecution and they're being told to stop. Stop bringing this man's blood upon us. Stop filling the city with it. And you know what their answer is? Whether it's right to obey Men, rather than God, you must judge. But as for us, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. The very next chapter, in sort of what I always is, I sort of marvel at because it's a little bit odd, right? They're told to stop. Gamaliel stands up and says, you shouldn't fight against this. They say, okay, and then they beat him. And I'm always thinking, Like, if you're not going to fight against, why did you beat them? Right? But they, they say, we must obey God rather than man. Now, as a side note about the high view of Jesus Christ that represents, right? Because who commanded them to do this? Jesus did. And they say, we must obey God rather than man. But what they said right there is a very important truth that we have to get. Because we know, for instance, Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained of God, and we're told to live in subjection to them. And right now, today, there are nations on this planet that are powers that be that are ordained of God who say, 
you are not allowed to come into our nation and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the problem for us. If we're supposed to obey the governmental powers, do we not go to those nations? Because we're told to obey them. But you know what Jesus established for us? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. And you know what the apostles understood that to mean? When legitimate government authority said to them, you must stop, they said, we must obey God rather than men. There is no human authority which can overtake the authority of the risen Lord. He has the right to invalidate a government's denial of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let me be careful when I say this, right? That, that I think, is very carefully and clearly defined what we're to do. Some people, sadly, have actually defied governments over things of their own making, right? They, they have said, we must obey God, but they actually don't have a textual basis for what they're saying. I'm not arguing for that at all. I'm not arguing for some kind of radical rejection of legitimate governmental authority. What I'm saying is, when we have clear revelation from God, we can, we can see it with our eyes and understand it because it's written in the text of Scripture, then you and I are always forced to a crisis of decision as to whether or not we will obey God or man. And when it comes to the global mission of Jesus Christ, we must obey Christ. So there is no human government that can tell us that we cannot proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we also need to understand the example of the book of Acts. Because when they obeyed Jesus, they suffered for it. And sometimes in our culture, we have wanted to obey Jesus and skip the suffering. And we have to be willing to own the fact that it is God's purpose often for his people to suffer for the sake of the advance of the gospel. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, the Apostle Paul says. Right, so, so we need to recognize that this has given us a permission in the face of any political force that would seek to stop us from advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a right to go, even though it may be costly. But it's not just a political issue that I believe Jesus is addressing here. He is also addressing the fact that if we are going to go into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are going to be engaging in a spiritual warfare with an enemy which is evil and powerful. That we are, in fact, going to be coming into conflict with, for instance, what the Gospel of John calls the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and John chapter 14. 
or the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God small g of this world, who's blind to the minds of them which believe not. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in the midst of spiritual conflict in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? That our primary conflict actually isn't with the human opponents of the gospel. It is actually with the one who energizes those opponents of the gospel. So much so that Paul could say of his own ministry with regard to the Thessalonians that he had desired to come to them, but Satan had hindered him. Right? He, he believed that there was a genuine spiritual conflict that was happening. J.D. did a, an excellent presentation this morning on animism, and, and the, uh, at least a portion of it highlights the fact that you and I tend to be materialists. And when I say that, I'm not meaning that we love money or things. We, that's true. But what I mean by is philosophical materialists, that is we tend to think the only things that are real are the things that, that we can see, right? You know there's a chair because you're sitting on it. I know there's pulpits right here because I can see it. We see the building. What, we and I, what you and I struggle with is, to use the language, for instance, of 1 Corinthians 11, we're gathered as the church to worship, and there are angels who are observing our worship. We, we struggle a little bit about that. We struggle with the fact that an unreconciled relationship in the assembly of God's people, 2 Corinthians says, could be an occasion where Satan takes advantage of you. Right? We, we, we have an excluded middle. We accept the premise of reality that we see, and because we believe in Jesus and God, we know there's a heaven. To everything between it, we tend to act as if spiritual beings are not really. Like someone gets sick, they've got a bug. If somebody's sinning, it's just merely their choice. We really don't have a functioning kind of theology that is informed by the scriptures that can take into consideration, for instance, that there were people in the Gospels who were physically sick because of demonic affliction. Or that, that uh, Satan could fill the heart of Ananias to lie. Or that a breakdown in the proper marital relations of 1 Corinthians 7 could be an occasion for Satan to tempt you. Right? And, and, and so we can get by a little bit comfortably like that, but somebody loads in a plane and flies into East Africa into a community where the witch doctor exercises influence and there's oppressive kind of demonic activity and it could freak you out. In fact, I think if we're honest, there's a lot of Americans who won't go into places like that because they've watched too many horror movies. 
And what Jesus is saying here to people whose worldview didn't exclude the middle, whose, whose worldview understood the kind of satanic opposition that could come against those who are trying to pioneer work into enemy territory, he was saying to them, I have all authority in heaven and earth. My name is above every name. There is no opponent of my spiritual power who can stand against the authority that I have. That God reigns through his son and his people can go out with confidence into the face of incredible darkness and do what Paul was commissioned to do. To turn people from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. That Jesus does that that Jesus rescues sinners, that God grants repentance to the knowledge of the truth so that people might be delivered from the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's what 2 Timothy 2 talks about. And so you and I can have a kind of confidence in the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us because of a spiritual power that he possesses, which is unrivaled. I want you to look at one other verse tonight. Turn over to John chapter 17, because there's also an aspect of this authority that we need to appreciate fully if we're going to be encouraged, to be confident about the commission Christ's authority supersedes all other authorities, whether political or spiritual, and even, if I could put it this way, personal or ministerial challenges that come to us because of his authority. This is Jesus' prayer the night of his betrayal before his crucifixion, and just so you can get sort of the flow of the context, start in verse 1 of John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Think about that text for a moment, all right? The son is saying here that he has been given all authority, authority over all flesh, and then he tells us what that authority is, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So here's an aspect of our commission rooted in the authority of Jesus that should bolster our confidence. That Jesus' mission is not a hope so. Nobody, nobody is going out for the sake of Jesus' name and thinking it sure would be nice if some people would get saved. But we really don't know. Jesus may have died. He may have risen from the dead. He may have gone back to heaven and nobody trusts him. 
right? That's not what Jesus was thinking. He's saying, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you because you've given me authority to give eternal life to those that you've given to me. Another way in which Jesus says this is back in chapter 10 of John, where he says, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, them must I also bring, and they will hear my voice. The mission of Jesus Christ was not some kind of divine gamble, that if Jesus comes and dies, maybe some people will get saved but that it was an eternal, powerfully effective work of Christ to rescue sinners and call out a people for the name of the Father so that you and I can embark on the task of the Great Commission not just sort of hoping it's going to work out, but believing the promise of God that the gospel is his power unto salvation. That God is going to call people to himself because he has the power to do that. Jesus has the authority to do that. Just three weeks ago, I was uh, visiting a couple of families that are from our church serving in Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, so actually, I, I left to fly home three nights, three weeks ago tonight. Uh, got there that week, and uh, obviously time zones are all messed up, right? It's eight hours difference. So uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, one of those nights, uh, I, I'm like, a, I know you folks probably think this is cold weather right now. This is like warm weather for me. I'm, a, I'm polar bear, well insulated. You know, I, I love it cold. Uh, it's often you'll wake up in the Doran household, and when I get downstairs, it's like 45, 50 degrees inside our house. I mean, we, we, we really love it cold, right? So I'm in this hotel, and it's just like, I can't get the air conditioning running. It's warm, so I've got my window open. So cold air could come in. But they do the call to prayer at ungodly hours. And in the middle of the night, I start hearing the wailing going out from the mosques. And I'm laying there, as has happened to me a couple times when I've been over there, just sort of staggered by the reality of what's going on. Istanbul, 15 million people in that city. 79.5 million people in Turkey. Less than 10,000 evangelical Christians in that nation. Let that sink in. 15 million people in that city, almost 80 million in the nation, and less than 10,000 believers. And that's using a pretty broad definition of evangelical Christian. So if you're going to put that in percentages, you're talking 
That's how small the percentage is. You can stand in, I was there last June and I'm on like the 12th floor looking out across this massive city. I mean, everywhere you look, I mean, 15 million people and minaret after minaret, mosque after mosque. You look at it and you listen to it and you think, The government says, you can't come here. The devil says, this is my territory. Why would anybody think they could get anything done there? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All authority. So when that government says, You may not enter. Jesus says, go. When Satan says, I have these people captured to do my will, and I will fight against you, Jesus says, I have bound the strong man. Plunder his house. When you stare into the faces of people who who are captured in a darkness with no, no understanding of who Jesus is and what the scriptures say, and you think, how will they ever hear? Hear the words of Jesus. I have authority over all flesh to give eternal life. And you know what God's people do? They go. Because they have permission and they have power, and they have a promise from Jesus Christ. And we're going in his name because there is no other name. And we're going, if need be, counting it joy to suffer for the sake of his name and declare the name that you and I love to gather and worship in the hopes that God will graciously open eyes and one day when we all gather before the Lamb, we'll turn and look and there'll be some of our Turkish brothers and sisters who came to see that Jesus is Lord because churches like Colonial Baptist Church sent someone to tell them and prayed for them, lifted them up before the throne of the Lamb and pleaded with God to work powerfully through the gospel. And you know what? God is doing it all over the world because Jesus is Lord. He has all authority. Let's let's proclaim that name until Jesus comes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son so that we might have life in him. Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing in your body our sins on the cross, living righteously and dying sacrificially and rising victoriously so that we might have life, forgiveness of sins, be set free from the curse of the law, might have a new heart, a new life. Thank you for sending your spirit so that we might bear witness to your glory. 
Thank you for spreading that good news to us who were cut off from your promises, aliens from the covenant, but you adopted us and brought us near through Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And so, Lord, help us to love you so much to to bask and glory in who you are so that we not only are compelled to go and send, but we live to and love to engage in the task that you've given to us to make disciples of all nations. So there are no boundaries to your power, no boundaries to your commission. And so, Lord, help us, help us to grow in our zeal and our knowledge and our devotion and commitment this weekend, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.